The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Pray with me. Father, as we just heard so eloquently and beautifully expressed, you have poured amazing grace out from your presence into ours. You have given grace in that you have proclaimed to us good news, gospel. As you have always been proclaiming it in the Old Testament and in the New, you have proclaimed good news by amazing grace. And then by amazing grace, you have moved in some of us that we can see it. And I pray you would, in amazing grace, do that more and more and more today. Open eyes, open hearts, move us to see this good news and embrace it because as you say, those who believe enter the rest. And those who do not, don't. So pour out this morning by the power of your Spirit more amazing grace, more stunning, alive, living grace to open our eyes to the magnitude of the situation that we all sit, stand in, and grab us and show us and draw us and give us faith that we might believe and find the rest. We need your grace for that, Father. And when you pour it out, we will bless your name for it. Singing and playing a thousand instruments with voices of all different sorts. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me and like us. Or would you do that this morning by your Spirit through your Word? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's fitting that today is so snowy and suddenly stormy after yesterday's brilliant sunshine. The winter of 1776 was a bleak period in American history. The revolution had begun, but the bright, sunshiny start had given way to clouds, and a whole host of problems and setbacks had dimmed the optimism of many. Several battles had been lost. New York City had been lost to the British, and things looked bad. And in that setting, in that context, Thomas Paine's words rung true. He wrote, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. Now, I'm no big fan of Thomas Paine. And obviously he's speaking about a different context, but he is pointing out a truth that stretches across all contexts, across all ages. There are times that come that try men's and women's souls and tell us, show us, what's really there. And in that setting, in the revolution, is at this time, facing these hardships that are terrifying, there seems to be a greater chance that I'm going to lose my life and we're going to fail. In those types of settings, people who are in it for the sunshine and the glory make a decision, count the cost, and walk away. That has always happened throughout history, and it happens in all kinds of endeavors. Difficulty and threat of hardship cause people to count the cost and decide whether they are in or out. 
And tragically, our text today is about a whole generation who decided they were out. And they walked away and were lost. And so it exists as a warning to us. And also an encouragement. The major theme is warning, but there is an encouraging piece in this as well. So we're going to see in the second half of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1. We've begun our series in Deuteronomy a few weeks past, and last week we saw that Moses is standing up to address the, the host of Israel as they're on the plains of Moab, ready to cross over the Jordan and enter into Canaan, the promised land. And he's there telling them, flashing back and recounting this, this big chunk of their history to explain a little bit about what's happened in the past and what lies before them. And he's speaking to them, the people right there, and he's also speaking to everybody who would say with them, yes, the Lord is my God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord. That's a proper name. That one right there is my God. To everybody who claims to be in some sort of a, of a relationship with him, Old Testament, New Testament, today, now. And his point from this text is that people who say, yes, the Lord is my God, that there are some amongst those people who when the chips are down and the sunshine leaves and the storm blows, count the cost, walk away and are cut off forever and miss the rest. External connection to God is irrelevant. It's what's going on in here that matters. What is there in the heart? Is there genuine faith in the heart? That is what is required to experience the promised rest of God. That's what our text today in Deuteronomy teaches us. And we can be sure of it because it's what the book of Hebrews says this text teaches us. More on that later. Let me read the passage, and I'm going to pause along the way at a couple different points to read and explain, read and explain as we move through it before I make a couple of overarching observations at the end. So let me read Deuteronomy 1, 19-25. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw. Remember, he's flashing back 38 years before on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord our, your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. And the thing seemed good to me. And I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Moses picks up right where he left off in verse 8 with the journey away from Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. God had them at Sinai, gave them the covenant, and then said, we're done here, move on. And so he picks right up there, moving towards the promised land. And, verses, and verse 19 basically describes that 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. And he describes that time there as the period when they were in the wilderness that was great and terrifying probably like the wilderness had been in for two years already. Something about that was, was great and terrifying. Maybe it was the, the vast emptiness of the place. Maybe it was the lack of provision or the exposure to the elements or wild animals. Who knows? But as they walked through the desert, there was fear there. But somehow they made it through. And there's a rhythm that gets developed in these first few verses of this fear 
that kind of hints at, and there's kind of a hint at how it was that they made it through. You see repeatedly the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord, the God of our fathers, four times in these verses, 19 and 20, twice in 21. And then he closes off by saying, do not fear or be dismayed looping back to the idea of fear from the the terrifying wilderness. So the first couple of verses here, we have these two terminals set up. Fear, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, fear. This is the issue here. Who do you look at? What do you look at? What's controlling you? Which which one of these terminals is going to draw you? That's the issue being set up. Verses 22 to 25 then recount the sending out of the 12 spies sent to go scout the land. And on the surface, this seems like a fine thing to do, perhaps even prudent. Sounds wise to send out some scouts to find out where you're going and what's going to be out there. People come and they present this to Moses. Verse 22, let's send men before us so they can scout this place out. But there's a hint there in the text that it might not be as good as it sounds. This might not all be on the up and up. Verse 21, right before this, verse 21 says, Go get the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, commanded you to, like he said, like he promised. Go there. Do not fear. Be dismayed. And the people say, hold on a second. Not so fast. Let's send some scouts before us. Who has gone before them? For these last two years, in a cloud of pillar, a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night, the Lord has gone before them. He's led the way, showed them where they should go and where they should camp. And they say, let's send men before us. Something's not quite right there. We'll see a little more about that. But they send the spies out, they, they go, they scout the place out, and they come back, and Moses ends, Moses is telling this in a certain way, he ends this in a particular way to emphasize something. He gives half of their report first. Oh, it's a good land. Look at all the stuff that's there. It is a good land that the Lord is giving to us. You're on a high note right there. Verses 26 to 33. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said, you do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. The spies report, oh, the land is good. I mean, it's really good. And Moses puts his stamp on that, yet, there's a big break there, a transition, yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord. The wheels come off the cart totally and suddenly. In a verse, the whole thing falls apart. Capitulation to fear, rebellion against the Lord. Verse 27, murmuring against him, slandering him. The Lord hates us and has brought us out here to give us not a land, but to give us into their hands so that they would destroy us. He's been lying to us the whole time. This is about killing us. Rebellion and slander and murmuring, unbelief tied to 
fear, verse 28, their hearts melt in fear and in dismay because they found out the reality about the current occupants of the land. There are people over there with swords who are not going to like this. What do you know? They just found that out. The spies report a bunch of accuracy. The people are great and tall. Statements about their strength. And remember, these folks are two years post-slavery and shepherding. They're not a trained army. There are a number of them, but they're not a trained army. They're not well-equipped with armor and weaponry and whatnot. But there's strong armies in there, and they have great tall cities. Think of the walls built around cities. How are we going to do that? And on top of that, there are giants in the land, sons of the Anakim, who were of unusually tall proportions. So they're even more powerful. And you know what? That's all true. That is entirely accurate. But Moses says, but what was the command? Don't fear. Be in dread of them. The Lord your God goes before you. There's the pairing again, fear and God. The Lord your God goes before you. Same phrase up above. He himself will fight for you. Absolutely, you bet. Yeah, there are armies there. There are giants there. They have fortified cities. Uh Uh-huh, but what about God? Yes, but, come on. The Lord will go before you. He himself will fight. You've seen it before already with your own eyes. He fought for you in Egypt. Referring to when they just left and Pharaoh had a little change of heart and chased them with the chariots and they were trapped against the Red Sea, fearing and crying out, accusing God again of wrong. And he says, don't fear, I myself will fight for you. And he does, he wipes them out. You saw it with your own eyes. And then he carried you through this wilderness, this wilderness of of great dread. Like a father carries his son. That's what he did. And he goes before you day by day in a pillar. You can see it. And he's led you for two years now. Come on! Yet despite this, and this is devastating, despite that, they said, yeah, uh uh-huh, who cares? Look at the giants. Despite that, you would not believe. In spite of all that evidence, you would not believe. Though the Lord went before you, repeating that phrase again. The unbelief was already back there in verse 22. Moses is hinting at it by using this before you idea. God's the one who goes before, but let's send men before. Unbelief was there and it finally found an opportunity to show up when the spies came back with the report, which is probably the report they were expecting and maybe even hoping for. Thirty-four to forty-six. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. 
And then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. The people do not believe and instead rebel and murmur, and he is angered by that unbelief. He's angered. And he makes another oath. He'd sworn to give them the land, and now he swears, I will not give the land to you. On an oath. There was a window of opportunity here that I promise you, God says, is closed. And you are not going in. It's going to pour out judgment on them and move his blessing on to others. Those who do not believe will go into the wilderness and they will all die there. They will never enter the promise. Caleb will. Because he wholly followed the Lord. And Joshua as well. We don't get the details here, but there were 12 spies and Caleb and Joshua were two of them who dissented with the majority opinion of the other ten. The other ten said, oh, the giants, you know, this isn't going to work. And they said, yes, it will. They sided with Moses on this and said, yes, it will. God will go before us. They believed. They saw the same giants, the same fortified cities, the same trained armies, and they, said, and they also saw God and said, this will work. Come on. That's the attitude right there, belief in the face of adversity and trouble and hardship and fear-inspiring realities. They believed, and so he says, Caleb will go in and his children after him. I'm going to give him the land. Same for Joshua. He shall cause Israel to inherit the rest. These guys aren't going in, but he's going to lead in another Israel, and they will enter into God's promised land of rest. These people, though, moving on. Now, it seems, verses 41 to 45, that, oh, there's a great big change of heart, that they hear, oh, we, whoops, we're sorry. But in fact, unbelief still reigns in their hearts. God speaks to them, and they did not listen and rebelled against his command. Went up, God not with them, they were defeated. And they come back, Weeping. And interestingly, difficultly, I think, for some of us, God does not listen to them. The window is really closed, and He's done with them. And that's where the text ends. It it's a, a drama filled text. And there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean there are there are many things to chase down, but the central the central issues here that we need to explore is this tension between the person standing here, the people standing here, and this tension between God and the things that cause fear. The challenges of, here's the stuff that I have to believe God in, but I'm not sure I want to, and then God. That's, that's the kind of the tension here, and we see it in the words of fear and dismay and dread repeated throughout, and the Lord your God. Obviously, intimately involved here. It's really, what's going on is a battle of belief. They believe their own resources that I'm not sure are capable, or do they believe in the Lord's resources? So let me put, it, let me put the main point here in a sentence before I tease it out in two observations. Here's the main point here. God gives his promised rest only to those who believe in Jesus. God gives his promised rest only to those who believe in Jesus. And explain how we get to Jesus there because you don't see his name obviously mentioned there. But he's in this text. He's the end of the law. It's a promised rest that God will give but only to those who believe in Jesus. So we're going to make two observations along that line basically to kind of divide it in half. Here's the first observation. I'll say this a couple times. Between the promise and the fullness, it's an idea from last week, between the promise 
and the fullness in here, in the middle. Take care that you not have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's a quote from Hebrews 3. In between the time when God has promised something, but it hasn't really come to pass in fullness yet, in here where we live, right here, take care. Watch your heart. Be on guard. Be self-examining. Be careful. Take care that you not have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We are face-to-face with a living God. That means He's an active God who is engaged with us in life moment by moment, responsive, intimate, here. And He's engaging with us in grace in alarming and amazing ways. He's the kind of living God who takes His people and carries them like a father carries his child. He's the kind of God who sees his people and sees their danger and says, you stand behind me, I will go before you and fight. I myself will fight for you. He's a living God engaged in this life and it's grace all the way through. We don't deserve a bit of it. We don't deserve him to care about us, let alone to engage in grace in our lives. But he does it day after day. He is a living and active God. And we could sing of that. And Moses wants to sing of that. But the reality is that most of the text is about the other people who don't want to sing about that. And that's surely why Moses is using this text with the people in the plains of Moab. He's using it as an exhortation. This is not just FYI history. For your information, here's what went down 38 years ago, now you know. The Bible doesn't work like that. This text is not working like that. He has far more than just information in line here, or in his purpose here. There is information, but he's saying to this audience in Moab, you're standing in the very same spot that they stood in 38 years ago. You've grown up now. The the promise has come to you. There's the land now laid out in front of you. The command, go take it, is to you. Take care that at the same spot you don't have their same response. Because the same people still live there in the same cities. Take care that you not have a heart that looks at that that might be fear-inspiring and says, no thanks. It's an exhortation to the people of God. That's what Moses means from this, to challenge them to belief in the Lord their God in the face of fear, to believe and obey and step out. That's what Moses means for them, and it's obviously also what the writer of the book of Hebrews means for the church. You could jot down Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 and read them later. Read Read the whole of chapters 3 and 4. In those chapters, the writer tells us the exact same story about the people paused at the door who rebel and turn away. Same story. And he tells it for a purpose. But, but first he makes a connection that we need to note. He's pointing out that this land of Canaan, you, know, you could draw it on a map, the geographic land there is not the end goal. We've got promise and fullness. The land of Canaan is not the fullness. There's a bunch of ways you can find that in the Bible, but the book, the writer of Hebrews makes it really clear. It's obvious because 500 years after the people entered the land and conquered it, so they already had the land, 500 years later, God, through David, is still talking about calling people to come into his rest, his promised land of blessing and peace. If I, if I say to you, you really should come over to my house one day. And then you come over to some, some house and I open the door and invite you in and get you something to drink and we sit down in the living room and as we're talking, I say, you know, really, I mean, really, one day you should come over to my house. 
You don't know whose house we're in suddenly, but one thing that's apparent is that the house that we're in is not my house because I'm still talking about how appropriate in the future it would be for you to come to my house. That's the logic of the book of Hebrews there. He's saying, if the land of Canaan was the rest, God would not have talked about, really, you need to come into the rest. There's something else that's the fullness out there somewhere. This geographic, this physical thing, this whole journey out of slavery through the wilderness into the promised land is all a type, used that word before, a concrete prophecy pointing ahead to something. And it's not hard to look at that and say it's mirroring the salvation journey out of slavery, wandering in the wilderness to cross over the river and come into the land of promised rest. That's what's being pointed at here. There's still the issue of salvation on the table, and the writer of the book of Hebrews uses this story to talk to the church, the people of God today who are affirming the Lord is our God. He's speaking to the church and exhorting them. From Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Hebrews 3.12. He's talking to the church and saying that. The Scripture is clear and consistent as it speaks to those who externally are connected to God. Externally are connected. The Lord is my God. I'm there. Who count themselves a part of His people. Who go to church. Who sing in the choir. Who give a tithe of their income. Who engage in chit-chat in the hallway after service. But who, when the chips are down and the sunshine passes away and the storm comes, show what's really inside of them, count the cost, and walk away. There are people in the church that fall into that category. There always have been. From the time of Moses to the time of the book of Hebrews till today. the church be warned. But also, let the church be wooed. You know what wooing is? Enticing and luring and and drawing along. Because while most of the story is about the warning that if you turn away, you will be lost, there's a window and it will close at some point, Most of the text is about the warning. There is Moses' attempt as he's getting shouted down by the masses to woo them. By calling their minds back to the living God who is engaged with people in grace. Who has walked with them to the desert carrying them. Who has fought battles for them in the past. Look at him. Yes, there's things to be afraid of. Of course, this is a fallen world. And God allows and introduces those things into our lives so as to prove to refine faith, which is of greater worth than gold. Absolutely there are things to be afraid of. Look at them and look at God, this God of grace who is living and active in your life. He's wooing. Trying to draw them after the Lord. Trust Him. Believe. It's the word to the church. Now the problem that I think I face right now is that, I don't know how many, but I think there are a number of us sitting here who think I'm talking to the person sitting next to you. (laughs) Or maybe the person who you had hoped would be sitting next to you but didn't come today. Because you start talking like, like I'm talking. You start talking about the church and people turning away and the window being shut and people being 
shut out and losing the rest. You start talking like that, and some people think, well, what he's talking about are non-Christians who are, who are posing in the church. And in a sense, yes. But the problem is that everybody assumes that's not them. They're talking about somebody else. And part of the problem with that, part of why we think like that, is because we are accustomed to thinking of salvation only in a punctiliar sense. In a point. Salvation is at a point. And so I got saved back in 1978, so therefore I, he's not talking to me. I can remember it well. I was four years old back in my mom's arms and I prayed this prayer and 50 years have passed. And I mean, it's been up and down, yeah, sure, but I know I'm saved because I remember when I was four. Well, maybe, and that is one way of thinking about it because the truth is salvation is punctiliar. There is a moment, a point, when you cross over from death to life. When you cross over from the kingdom of darkness and are transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, there is a point. But there's a life attached to it as well. Let me try to get at this by explaining a a story that maybe you saw in the newspaper. I think it was yesterday. Maybe the day before. There is a, I think, a 45-year-old scientist in Germany who handles the Ebola virus. And she accidentally, to be sure, poked herself in the finger with an Ebola-loaded syringe about three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I think. And she had three layers of protective gloves on and I think was following all the normal procedures. I don't know what they would be, but accidentally, punctilier, there's a point where she got herself through the gloves, into her finger. Which is bad news. That's not, that's not, that's not a, you don't want Ebola. She doesn't want Ebola. So they're scrambling, the international, uh, whatever the community would be that deals with that sort of thing, is scrambling, trying to figure out what do we do about this? Is there anything we can do about this other than watching her? There have been Two other scientists, I understand that kills about 90% of the people who get it. There have been two other people, scientists, who have accidentally got it. One died, one didn't. So do we just have to wait? Is there something we can do? Well, there was an experimental vaccine that they rushed to her. She's in Germany. They rushed to her, they gave it to her, and they're waiting. And so far, she hasn't developed it. But she gets up every morning wondering if today is the day. There will be the, the period will pass when they'll know if she's going to get it or not. But the interesting thing is, at the end of the day, they won't even know if the experimental vaccine works because they don't actually know if when the needle went into her finger, the syringe did not depress. So they don't know if anything actually got into her or not. There's a lot of mystery in this. So probably the best sort of thing to do is to not use that experimental vaccine because she probably didn't get it. Right? No. (laughs) Give me the experimental vaccine. (laughs) Right? Don't bet on the fact that I'm safe. Didn't get me. The syringe didn't depress. I'm fine. Now, it either did or didn't at some point two and a half weeks ago right at that point spot in time. It either did or it didn't go into her. And the wise course of action is take every precaution and assume that she's in danger. Your salvation is far more critical than Ebola. That question is of supreme importance. Do not bet on the fact that I didn't get it. Or in this case, I did. I I imagine, I don't know what the the lead-on symptoms would be for Ebola, but I imagine that she's watching very closely to see, did my temperature go up a little bit? Do I feel a little nauseous? Whatever the symptoms might be. Am Am I feeling a little weaker than I was? She's watching that closely, concerned about it. 
Many of us assume, I was saved 50 years ago, I'm fine, and we've stopped watching. In fact, you either were or weren't saved. That is true. But there is a life that follows on after that. And part of how we are saved, the New Testament will will talk about salvation in three tenses, past tense, future tense, and ongoing. Part of how we are saved is by seeing warnings and wooings and saying, I'm going to grab that and I'm going to avoid that. Take the vaccine. Take the vaccine and eat your vegetables and get rest. You follow what I'm saying in that? I know that doesn't directly, exactly connect with salvation and Ebola, but do you follow what I'm saying there? Many of us are banking our eternities on something that we think happened decades ago. And you've given up even listening to the warning and the wooing because you don't think it applies. In fact, it is the means that God uses to protect you. It's the vaccine day after day after day. The storm will come when you'll be challenged. Do I believe what's fear-inspiring? Do I believe the Lord? And his warning, believe me, that's where life is. You hear that and you respond to it. That's what keeps you. So hear it and respond. Don't say, not talking to me. Please, take care that you not have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Everything is at stake. To turn away cuts you out of the rest. Unbelief cuts you out of the rest. And I think at that point, at least for myself, I'm kind of drawn up a little short because I realize that there's unbelief in my life. It's in me, day by day. There are times when I look at these two and I respond to that one, the fear, the challenges, and I live in relation to them and seemingly forget about the Lord. That happens in my life. It happens in your life. And unbelief leads to the anger of God. Uh Uh-oh. That begins to move us to the end of the law, Christ. The second observation. Here's the second observation in a sentence. Jesus, not Joshua, is able to cause us to inherit God's promised rest. Jesus, not Joshua, is able to cause us to inherit God's promised rest. Obviously, I'm using the language of verse 38 where it describes Joshua, the son of Nun, should be encouraged because he is going to cause Israel to inherit this promised land of rest. God pronounces judgment on these folks, and he says, I am going to bring in the next generation, and I'm going to bring them in under the leadership of Joshua. He's the one who's going to cause it to make it possible. So Moses, you know, elevate him, lift him up, enable him. He's the one who will cause it. That's clear from the passage, but there's a lot more in view, again, from the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 4. And just like Hebrews is arguing, because the, the land of Canaan is not the fullness of the promise, Joshua was not the fullness of the promise. Hebrews 4, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's still there. It's still out there. It's not a past tense thing. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The disobedience we're reading about today. Joshua caused them to enter into the land of Canaan. You can read that in the book of Joshua. 
But just like there's another land, there's another Joshua. The second Joshua. Yeshua, Jesus. The one who said, Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The English language hides something that would be obvious if you're reading Hebrews 4 in Greek. Joshua and Jesus are the same name. If you read through Hebrews 4, you have, but if, I'll use Jesus, but if Jesus had given them the rest, why did he talk about another rest? And you keep reading on, but now we have a great high priest, Jesus. Same name. I cannot think that's an accident of history. The name related to the salvation of God. God saves. Moses leads him up so far, but he can't quite complete the deal, and so he gives way to Joshua. This is way too coincidental to be a coincidence. Moses can't quite lead them all the way there, so he gives way to Jesus, who actually is able to cause his people to inherit the rest. It's marvelous. The second Joshua has come. Spiritual fullness promised has come in the one who himself gives rest, who is the rest. Who makes it possible for us to enter into this place. That's what the land of Canaan's about. The land of Canaan is not, is not about rocks and dirt. Who cares? They had rocks and dirt in Egypt. The land of Canaan, the promised land, is about a place where we can dwell with God. And he will pour out milk and honey, in one way of putting it, or a land of abundant rich food, another way, or, might cause some of us some problem, rich and abundant wine, or peace, no enemy will ever attack you. The presence of God in that place with his people. That's what the land is about. That's what rest is. The dwelling of God with his people who trust him and he goes before them and provides so that they're provided for and blessed and he's honored. That's what the land of rest is about. And it's not Canaan. Hebrews makes that clear. It's the presence of God itself which Jesus is only able to cause us to inherit. It has to be Jesus because we can't get there any other way. We have hearts that are trapped in unbelief. Even now at this stage of my life, I look and say, unbelief is left and right in my life. But certainly even before I became a Christian, unbelief reigns in me and it angers God and he sends that out of his presence because it's sin. That's who I am. That's who we are from birth. How can that be dealt with? That's only in Jesus. That's what, that's what God does in sending his son to earth to deal with the sin problem, unbelief. He deals with it in two ways. He deals with it in, in a legal way that my sin earns from me the anger of God, the wrath of God. God looks at me and says, unrighteous. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. Well, Jesus can deal with that in a legal way by going to the cross to die to pay for sin so that he can replace me with him. He can take the wrath of God, all the anger of God poured out for unbelief, pours it out on Jesus, and so I stand righteous. He deals with it legally. But he also deals with it in another way, functionally. This is a second piece of hope in Christ. He deals with it functionally in that he, he cuts in my heart, in a, in a believer's heart, he cuts the chain that binds you to and, and straps you to only live by sight. To only live seeing the threat and living in accordance with it. He cuts that chain so as to make it possible for us to actually see Christ and follow him. He enables belief. He enables obedience today, tomorrow, and the next day. That's the Spirit's work in my life. 
freeing me from slavery to sin, if you want to use the Bible's language, freeing me from slavery to sin and setting me free that I might follow God in obedience, faith. So Jesus delivers me into the rest of God, in the big picture in the legal sense, by, by making me right with God relationally. And he delivers me into the rest of God day by day by day by day by enabling me to follow him in obedience and trust. And trusting and obeying is the only way to be happy in Jesus, to trust and obey. Know that one? That can only happen because of the work of Christ. He's able to cause me to inherit that today and the next day and the next day and on to the fullness at the end when the dwelling of God is with man, sin is wiped out and the world is made new. Jesus, not Joshua, is able to cause us to inherit the rest of God. He opens the door to something that is marvelous forever and ever. It doesn't come to everybody automatically, though. It only comes to those who believe. So hear the warning and see the wooing. Come to him. Say, Jesus, I need that rest. I want to avoid the anger of God, and I want to come into a place of rest with you. Come to him. Talk to him like that, and he will accept you. God gives his promised rest only to those who believe in Jesus. So believe, church, believe. If you're not a member of the church, believe and find rest. So move towards communion. Let me encourage you, take some time now, pray. Think through, what does this mean for me? Remember the church, you've been a Christian for X number of years. What does it mean for you to believe him today? And if you're not, if you're new, you're for the first, this first time you're here, what does it mean for you? Trust him today and find rest. Take a few minutes, think, pray, and I'll close this in prayer and move us towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.